Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Recent rulings by the Supreme Court are getting a lot of attention and sparking some uncomfortable and heated conversations. Two weeks ago, in a 6-3 to three vote, the court removed race from consideration in the college admissions process, essentially striking down affirmative action. The ruling will likely affect where and how many students apply to college in the future. And now there is a new challenge for some colleges and universities as well. How will they abide by the court's ruling and still grow a diverse student body? As I talk this morning with a university president as well as a historian about what affirmative action has established and what we could see happen next, I want to hear from you also. What are your thoughts about removing race as a factor in college admissions? And how do you think the court's decision will affect the overall college experience? The phone lines are open this hour. You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Join the conversation. Let's bring in our guests. We have with us, uh, joining us remotely, Leah Wright Rigger, a political historian and associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Dr. Rigger has a PhD in history, and she is joining us this morning for the conversation. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. Thanks uh, for having me. Thank you for your time. And we also have here in Minnesota, Suzanne Rivera, the president of McAllister College in St. Paul. Dr. Rivera is the college's 17th president and has worked in higher education for more than 25 years. Good morning to you, Suzanne. Good morning. Good to be with you, Angela. So uh, both of you, you're leaders in education, and I'm sure, like me, you've been following the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action very closely, as well as reactions to it nationally. But I want to know, tell me about your own thoughts and feelings when you heard about the court's ruling. And uh, Leah, I'll begin with you. What were you thinking when you heard this? I think it's a measure of shock, but not surprise. And I say shock because even as, you know, it's coming and all the indicators and the lead up uh, around this case, including the political factors, right? So the changing of the guard on the Supreme Court, um, all of the lead up seemed to indicate that this would be the outcome of the case. But it's still shocking nonetheless to see the overturning of more than 50 years of of precedent and and law. Um, But the part that I think wasn't surprising was that you know the court the supreme court has been chipping away at affirmative action since affirmative action first became the law of the land so we knew in the last decision particularly the mission decision decisions in 2003 that uh, the court wanted to see at some point an end to affirmative action and so with all those political factors surrounding the court right now and these in the shift to the right it was only a matter of time but it's still shocking nonetheless. So shocking is a feeling. I personally had a feeling of sadness. Was was sadness in there too for you, Leah? I think sadness. Uh, it's the end of an era. Um, although the court did allow for some amendments in there with, the, with regard to the use of race and affirmative action. But it means in the same way that previous decisions have changed the way affirmative action is done in this country, it does mean it's the end, you know, it, it's the end of affirmative action as we know it. And I have sadness, I think, for generations uh, of students who won't be the beneficiaries of um, affirmative action, but desperately need it because they've been denied and continue to be denied access within this country. 
And Suzanne, uh, thinking uh, back to uh, that last week of June when these decisions were coming out and, um, you know, there was, you know, a lot of, of some, in some cases, shock and surprise. And in other cases, like, you know, as, as Leah just said, not surprise. The lead up was there. What were your initial thoughts, uh, Suzanne? Well, like Dr. Rigger, I, I felt um, that even though it wasn't surprising, that it was really disappointing. You know, we, we could have anticipated, we many did anticipate that the court would go in this direction. But the result is disappointing because we know that it sends a strong signal to students from groups that historically have been excluded from the opportunity of higher education that it looks like it's no longer a priority to take steps to affirmatively include them. You know, for, for, for people who have spent their entire careers trying to make the opportunity of higher education more accessible to students from historically excluded groups, it's really disappointing and frustrating because we, we know a diverse student body creates a rich learning environment that prepares all students for success, success in a diverse workforce that they're going to be entering. And so it's critical for an innovative economy and a healthy democracy that we have diverse student bodies on our college campuses. I, I would add to that that I think a college degree has been proven time and time again. It, it's a, the single most powerful driver of economic mobility for lower income students who disproportionately are members of groups that are underrepresented in higher education. So the problem with this ruling is that it limits the tools we have to assure we are including a variety of students on our campuses who can really represent the diversity of our country's young people so we can prepare them for, for careers and to be engaged voters. It's going to make our work harder. Mm. And I should know, uh, both of you are, are women of color, and you're both uh, in, you know, you're interacting with students. And I, I know it's summertime and, and people have had vacations. But I'm wondering, have you had a chance, uh, either of you to talk with some students on your campuses about how they're feeling about it and sort of the message that they feel it sends to them? Leah? So I haven't had a chance to talk to students on, on my specific campus. You know, they're out of there. They're, they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're gone for the summer. But I have had a chance to talk with students, both, both former and present at different universities, mm-hmm. who express a profound sense of disappointment. Um, and for many of them, I think, and this is uh, really interesting to me. It's a really interesting point of activism. For many of them, it is, an, it is a radicalizing moment in that they feel a greater sense of urgency around questions of inequality and equity. Mm. So they are taking this as a call to action. Mm. And they're saying we have to do something um, far more aggressively, right? We've been far too complacent for too long. Um, And so I find that fascinating because it appears that, you know, that the Michigan, Michigan decisions from 2003 had a similar effect on that student generation, on campus generation. What happened this there? Kind of, I think this kind of understanding that with this restriction on affirmative action and an essentially a timeline mm-hmm. for affirmative action, that there had to be new measures in place. And I think for many students, it pushed them towards a more, uh, a more radical sense of equity and equality. So thinking about new ways to do, quote unquote, affirmative action, but new ways to really um, uh, close uh, things like the wealth gap, right, mm-hmm. social mobility gaps. And I think you're, we're going to see the same thing amongst the generation of college students right now. Um, we also know on college campuses that uh, based on you know, these various states, Michigan, California, Texas, that have uh, essentially banned affirmative action previously on the state level, 
that we see an increase not only in um, uh, not only in uh, activism amongst student underrepresented students of color, but we also see an increase in the number of uh, or an increase in the students that drop off who don't go to college. So it actually exacerbates mm-hmm. and makes things worse. Um, and I think that's a that's a problem. And this is what students are talking about right now. Uh, and, and Suzanne, how would you describe what are you hearing from from young people who, who you know? Well, McAllister College is known for having a deep commitment to social justice. It's yes. baked into the DNA of the place. Yes. And so whenever an issue of social import arises, our students um, are always really vocal in ways that make us very proud. But, you know, we at the college also came out with a statement immediately after the court's decision on social media um, saying that we would continue to um, consider assembling a diverse student body to to be a top priority and and that even though we were concerned about the effect of the ruling, we're prepared to do everything possible to ensure that the opportunity of a McAllister education remains accessible to everyone. And the, the feedback on that statement from people within our community has been really positive. Although I know that this is a divisive issue in the country, I think it's less divisive among people who have experienced firsthand the opportunity of higher education and who appreciate that it really is a ladder of opportunity and and want it to be made accessible to students from all different walks of life. Uh, I like the thought um, that that Leah shared about, uh, particularly with young people, students in college right now, they they view this as a call to action. They feel a sense of urgency, uh, a sense uh, of being excellent, more creative and being more vocal. And and do you share that opinion that uh, the young people are really watching and thinking about what can we do? What power do we have? Oh, for sure. I joined the McAllister community in summer of 2020, which, of course, was a time of, you know, great activism around the fear and grief and and righteous anger following the murder of George Floyd in the Twin Cities. Um, But what I have seen time and time again since arriving in this community is how deeply its members care about wanting to make a more just and peaceful world. And so Mm -hmm. whenever an issue arises that concerns questions of social justice, McAllister students can always be counted on to be on the front lines and and, uh, trying to make things better. To stand up. All right, we're talking about the recent ruling by the Supreme Court essentially striking down affirmative action in the college admissions process. And I want to hear from you too, our listeners. Uh, What are you thinking? What are your thoughts about removing race as a factor in college admissions? And and how do you think the court's decision will affect the college experience? Do you have a story to tell? Give us a call at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Let's uh, go to the phone lines right now and talk with one of our listeners in St. Paul. Sherry is on the phone. Good morning, Sherry. What do you want to share with us? Hi. 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 I want you to know that I benefited from having a diverse student body. I'm a white woman, and um, I I was assigned by the college to have a black uh, roommate who I got along with really well, and I, I learned so much. What, I thought what I year were them. you in college, Sherry? What year was this, or what years? I went to McAllister in the 80s. Okay. And I I thought I was open-minded and good-willed and new stuff. But, you know, this liberal didn't. (laughs) um, I want to say this. How can you know 
what it's like to be discriminated against when you're white. How can you know? Oh, you you can't. Because part of the college experience is meeting people from different backgrounds than your own. That's right. And there is so much inherited... Um, there is so much inherited PTSD, inherited grief that comes with being a person of color that we white people are just blind to. So, <laughs> sure, just, do you think later in life, uh, as a young adult, older adult, that that experience um, shaped you in certain ways and helped you view the world in a different way? Oh, yeah. And in the workplace? I mean, there are so many different occasions where I am able to see things that my coworkers aren't, and there are so many, there's so many different ways in which I can see different microaggressions mm. and pick up on them, and there are so many different ways in which somebody can say to me, um, it benefited me. Mm-hmm. to have a diverse student body. All right. Um, Sherry, I, I want to hear from our right? guests on this. Thank you for sharing your story, uh, Sherry, in St. Paul, a uh, college student in the late 80s. Uh, I could have been that black roommate, Sherry. I, I feel like my roommates at the University of Maryland, they learned some things, a thing or two from me as well, as I learned from them uh, as well. And it, it really did shape my own, um, you know, as I became older and, and joined the workforce, my understanding of other cultures. And um, Leah, what do you hear in, in Sherry's story? So I certainly hear the story of affirmative action, particularly the post-Baki version of affirmative action, which says that, you know, African-Americans have a distinct uh, historical experience that makes affirmative action and the quest for equity um, just makes it just, makes it actually constitutional and legal. Um, I also hear about the essentially, you know, I know Sherry's story didn't describe the conflict, but from the perspective of black students who were dropped into college, it is a, an experience often of conflict, predominantly in white spaces. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the things that we think about with affirmative action or that, that has historically been uh, thought about with affirmative action, which is what does it actually mean for black students to move into predominantly spice, white spaces long denied to them? So we're creating access. And through that, we think we will create equity. But are we actually shaping these spaces? And this is why diversity becomes an important part of the equation for affirmative action, which is it's about creating diverse experiences to make a uh, kind of a richer environment for all. So affirmative action isn't simply about opening doors or providing access or benefiting underrepresented minority groups, but actually is a beneficial policy for everyone. Uh, Suzanne, uh, the caller, uh, attended McAllister in the late 80s and talks about uh, what she was able to learn about uh, a different culture from having a roommate of a different background, a different race. And what did you hear in her, her, her story? Well, I think McAllister, like a lot of uh, predominantly white selective um, private institutions, really began in earnest in the 70s and 80s to admit larger cohorts of students of color deliberately in order to do a better job of creating that ladder of opportunity and to create a more diverse student body because 
it, it believed, and we continue to believe at McAllister, that having a diverse student body enriches the educational experience for everyone. So I appreciate the caller um, noting that uh, we often talk about affirmative action in the context of the opportunities it creates for its beneficiaries. And by that, we usually mean the people from historically excluded groups who are given access to previously unavailable spaces, but it really benefits all students at the college who get to benefit from the rich learning environment that puts them in close proximity with people whose lived experiences are very different than theirs, whether it's a roommate or a lab partner or a teammate on an athletics team or the person who sits next to you in the orchestra or whatever it may be, you know, uh, uh, meeting people who you wouldn't otherwise have met, living and learning with them in an intimate setting um, creates the conditions under which people can really let down their guard, be a little bit vulnerable, admit they don't know everything, and broaden their uh, worldview and their their horizons by truly listening and understanding and forming deep and loving friendships with people who come from very different experiences. There's inherent value in that. It helps to create a more cohesive society when we put people in close proximity to to folks who are different than they are. And it helps prepare them, as the caller said, for a diverse workforce in mm-hmm. which they're going to be asked to serve on teams with people who are different than them. So if anyone hasn't had that experience and then is thrown into it in the workforce, they're not going to be as well prepared. Let's take some more phone calls from listeners who are, are calling in to, to weigh in on uh, how we're talking about and thinking about this recent Supreme Court ruling uh, that uh, removes race as a factor in the college admissions process. What are your thoughts about about this? And, and how do you think this decision will affect the college experience? Who will apply? How many people will apply? And how will colleges themselves uh, move forward if they uh, see this as a priority of trying to create a more diverse student body on campus? 651 Two two seven six thousand is the number, or eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. In Wyzetta, we have Elena on the line. Good morning. What do you want to share with us? Good morning. Um, yes, I'd like to share that. Um, you know, I'd like to say first, I am a woman of color, and um, the ruling with affirmative action. Um, I'm, I was actually glad it happened. I think no one should be um, excluded based on the color and um, in, in college um, acceptance or, in that case, after that, the workforce. Um, however, I think the question that we really need to be asking ourselves is what can we change in the um, education system starting in kindergarten for, to allow everyone who goes through school to be able to compete equally to be accepted into college or work, not based on their race, but how can we allow our schools to change um, in order for everyone to have the same um, opportunities that so they're not looked at by their race to be accepted. And I think that's a I think it's a cultural, a community change that needs to happen. And we need to ask uh, real questions. Are the teachers in unions working for us? Are they helping our students in underprivileged areas be able to compete? Um, are we going to change that, the system starting from the beginning? And Elena, what are you seeing in, in K-12 through education that stands out to you that uh, makes you feel like that this ruling was, was, was good? Um, well, I think that um, I well, I, in terms of K through twelve, I think that's 
if if we're if not everyone is um, equally given the same opportunity for education, which I don't think we have in this country. Oh no, I think that's where we need to have the change start. Um, but I'm seeing, you know, there's certain communities that are struggling with um, certain grades of students are, aren't able to um, read at the same level as other students. But if we can change all of this and we can change these policies and have kids be able to um, read and do math all at the same levels, I, I don't think there's a need to look at what color are you when you're entering college? It's what, how, how are you able to compete? All right, that's Elena and Mizetta. Uh, what do you hear and what she's expressing, Leah? So I, I hear revolution. <laughs> and I, I say that not to be facetious or sarcastic or anything, but honestly, that is the root of the problem, which is that students, because of their race and because of historically how they have been treated and because of their race and how they continue to be discriminated against because of their race, are not receiving equal educations. They are not coming from equal backgrounds. They are not receiving equal anything. Um, But what that kind of calls for is a very deep and vast investment in those underprivileged communities, which the United States has, has said time and time again, they are not willing to do. Um, funny story about affirmative action and the origins of affirmative action. The Urban League, Whitney Young, initially proposed what he called a domestic Marshall Plan, which was be to invest essentially billions of dollars into underrepresented uh, uh, racial areas that have been um, discriminated, historically discriminated against, and said, we can do that. We don't need affirmative action if we do that. And the government overwhelmingly said, we can't do that. That's socialism. That's, that doesn't make any sense. And it's interesting because there have been efforts. In fact, there has been a legal case that just got tossed out in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, which called for reparations essentially, to repair for historical wrongdoings and the uh, Tulsa bombings and things like that. And the court tossed it out and said, you are not entitled to this. So I think what you're talking about absolutely makes sense. But the actual kind of infrastructure and commitment necessary is something that our country has been unwilling to commit to for a very long time. And Suzanne, what are your thoughts? Uh, This caller is saying because uh, we have all these problems and inequities in K through 12 education, um, that, you know, that affirmative action, it's not helpful when you get to college. But to me, that kind of makes the case of why you need affirmative action if you're acknowledging that there are these inequities. Well, I'd like to I'd like to address this in two parts. I mean, the, the first thing is I want to affirm the caller is correct that studies show that when black and Latino students are given access to high quality K through 12 education, that they that they get into and graduate college at the same or even better rates than white students do. So I think it is true that although talent is equally distributed, opportunity and and good education is not equally distributed in our society, and we need to rectify that. So I agree 100% that we need to improve our K-12 system so that all kids get the best preparation possible. Um, But the other side of this, uh, you know, as Dr. Rigger said, is, but that's not how things are. Right now, the playing field is not equal, unfortunately. And because it isn't, when it comes time to apply to college, there are a variety of factors we look at when we assemble a class. And one of them is what obstacles students have overcome in order to accomplish, um, you, you know, in order to get good grades and have a successful academic record. So 
I think what may not be obvious um, to the general public about how college admission works is that when we talk about affirmative action, this isn't about admitting unqualified students because they've checked a particular box on their application. Correct. Most colleges and universities get way more applications than they have spots available. So if you take McAllister as an example, if we get eight or 9,000 applications in a given year and we only have 550 spots, it may be the case that 7,500 of those applications are perfectly qualified academically. Mm-hmm. They could all do fine at the college. But now the, mm-hmm. the challenge we have is to assemble like a puzzle what the entering class is going to look like. And in order to assemble an entering class of 550 people, we want to look at a variety of factors. And that includes striving for gender parity. It includes having enough athletes for all of our teams. It includes having a piccolo player for the orchestra. Uh, It includes having uh, students from all 50 U.S. states, and it includes thinking about having uh, a diversity of opinions, experiences, worldviews, etc. So it's when we think about affirmative action, we are not thinking about letting in unqualified students taking spots away from other students. We're saying, let's look at the full range of uh, everything a particular applicant brings to the table and then try to assemble the most vibrant, diverse class we possibly can so that the educational experience will be richer for everyone. You gave us a very uh, clear picture of just the process. I I appreciate that, uh, Suzanne. Uh, We're talking about uh, the end of affirmative action in college admissions uh, because of a recent Supreme Court ruling. And I want to hear your thoughts uh, about removing race as a factor uh, in the admissions process. How are you talking about this uh, among your your family and friends? And and how do you think the court's decision will affect the college experience? Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828 as I talk with two guests. I want to take another phone call from a listener before we go to news. Uh, In St. Paul, we have James on the phone. And James, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I would say, you know, it, it might be disappointing, but it is how it is. So rather than hand-wringing, we maybe reevaluate what we've been doing and what our assumptions have been. It, you know, it's pretty clear the particular flavor of affirmative action we've tried it hasn't really got us where we'd like to be. We don't have a significantly huger black middle class, or we still have racial problems in our society that aren't, don't seem to be getting significantly better. So that tool didn't do what we wanted it to do. And now it's taken away from us. Maybe we look at other tools. Uh, We look maybe more at economic diversity and how do we fix uh, problems where people get admitted and they can't finish for various reasons that have nothing to do with their academic ability. Um, As far as getting diversity of experience, we can have service requirements for everybody. There's a lot of other tools that are still available to accomplish the actual goal, which is to make, Uh, a more equitable and reasonable society rather than just throwing up our hands and getting angry that we don't have that particular tool anymore. I I hear this. I I see this, James. Uh, What we've been doing, um, is it, is it working? Are we seeing the impact that, that, that we would hope for? Uh, What do you think Leah and what he's expressing? So what's interesting is affirmative action out the gate has an, an immediate impact Um, One of the first things that we see by the 1970s is that Black women are going to college at the same rate um, and at some points outpacing their white counterparts. 
We also know that affirmative action works really, really well for white women, that there are innumerable um, kind of benefits that come about because of white women, whether it be in the educational realm, which is what we're talking about today, um, and attending college and the kind of college that they are able to attend, but also in terms of the job, uh, the job market and uh, employment. So those are all things that have come as a positive affirmative action. And there, there are many more, too many to detail here today. But I do agree with the caller that given the change um, that the Supreme Court has essentially handed down in the narrowing and the new restrictions that they have put in place, that the call today is about what do we do next? What do we call, what comes next? And if the question is about equity and equality um, and, and kind of fixing these continuing problems and addressing inequality, um, that it is time to come up with new solutions. And what we've seen is that some colleges have already come up with solutions. They've already in, uh, uh, begun, started to use race and economics as a proxy for one another. We've also seen, I think, an increase in this kind of holistic um, individual tailoring of classes um, for college admissions. And I think the next step may be getting rid of some of those metrics, some of those so-called you know, objective metrics like the SATs or in uh, graduate admissions, the GREs or you know, those kinds of things, um, and putting in new tools to help us assess that is not purely based on some kind of numerical right, uh, 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 measurement um, that doesn't accurately predict how well some someone will do in college or how they will make up a class. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more schools dropping the SATs and mm. looking to new ways to put together a class, a cohesive class. Uh, Suzanne, James says it's time for a new thing. And, and, mm-hmm. and what do you think about will this open the door to some some in a, new innovative ways to build this ideal college campus? I think so. I, you know, many college campuses, including McAllister, already use a holistic assessment process. We went test optional several years ago, so it's not necessary to submit test scores to McAllister when you yes, apply. Yes, um, a lot of colleges look, that. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and that is one way of expanding access is to say that we're not going to put this artificial barrier that we, that we know um, is not an objective measure in front of students because we really want to increase access. So we, we do holistic assessment in our admission process already. And, but the caller is also right that the entire system is going to now need to reevaluate whether, for example, application forms need to change, whether wording in essay questions need to change. I will point out that the Supreme Court did give us a little bit of flexibility here, and I'm going to read from from the ruling where they say, quote, nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life, so long as that discussion is concretely tied to a quality of character or unique ability that the particular applicant can contribute to the university. So I, I take this to mean that we can still consider the applicant's life experiences you know if they if we if we have an essay question that says tell us about yourself and the student explains how mm-hmm. their identity impacted them or uh you know some obstacle that they overcame it appears that we can consider this in our admissions process holistically in the context of all the other things their academic achievement and what kinds of extracurriculars they've done and whether they were a volunteer etc the point is that it's going to require us to make sure that we're asking the right questions in our applications in order to get at 
you know, what is this student all about? Who are they? And what constellation of skills and attributes are they going to bring to our college campus if we admit them? Uh, Let's go to uh, St. Paul and talk with a caller on hold. This is Samuel, who is on the line. Good morning, Samuel. Thank you for calling in. What did you want to tell us? Good morning. So I attend an elite, primarily white institution, and I'm white myself, but I did want to attest to the qualitative benefits of having a diverse student body. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine earlier this year, and he told me that were it not for a special opportunity, he would not have gone to college at all. Um, And he has a business on campus um, that helps, well, (laughs) that serves a fair amount of the student body. And he's just one example of this. Um, People like him on on my campus not um, are entrepreneurs and serving serving student government um, and enrich the experience for all of us. So I did, yeah. And Samuel, I'll talk about that. Yeah, what do you think you've learned, maybe even in classroom discussions? What do you think has been the value of having people of different backgrounds and different races on in your classes with you, you know, in, in your social life even? Well, absolutely. I mean, being at this college, it's very much, um, it draws pretty heavily on one particular segment of the population. And um, being in classes with a more diverse group of people um, augments the um, experiences that are just particular to that segment. So it's, you know, it's a lot of people from the suburbs um, who have never run into a fair amount of complicated urban issues, for example. And um, without a more diverse student body, we wouldn't have nearly as much nuance in our discussion of those issues and wouldn't be able to spread as much understanding. Mm-hmm. And Samuel, are you thinking about when you graduate and you enter the workforce that this may uh, affect how you uh, are able to perform at work or how you view your colleagues oh, and get your work done? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that um, it's really important to know where other people are coming from. I mean, I think that if you're in kind of the dominant American culture, you can take for granted a lot of norms that may not actually be universal. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, getting exposure to a diverse set of people actually helps you build professional social skills um, that enable you to interact better with, you know, Americans, Mm -hmm. more Americans. All right, Samuel, a, a student here in Minnesota, and uh, good luck with the rest of your college experience. Thank you for calling in. I, I love hearing from our, our young people. Uh, Suzanne, what did you hear in this college student story? Yeah, I think we, we hear time and time again testimony from people who have felt that they've benefited by being in a diverse learning environment because it helps them understand different points of view and helps them maybe see their own blind spots or, you know, overcome limits in their understanding by being exposed to other folks. And I really appreciate the perspective that it's not only a benefit in the classroom, but also can be a benefit, 
socially and in terms of preparing for the diverse workforce that students are going to encounter when they leave college. Look, businesses have known this, right? They come to colleges like McAllister and say, we want your students because we're trying to build a diverse workforce. They know that it's a competitive advantage to have a variety of different kinds of employees who can interact effectively on teams with each other, but also who can effectively Mm -hmm. interact with various members of the public who have different points of view, come from different walks of life. And so they're really looking to schools like McAllister to help them acquire the kinds of employees who are going to help them get an edge in business. Uh, one of the things we talk a lot about on this uh, program um, is is how the state is changing. And also we talk about racial disparities a lot as well. But I, I just want to, I, I love numbers and stats. I just want to share one that I read uh, in an article in the Star Tribune. It says by by the year 2036, about 40% of Minnesota public high school graduates will be people of color. And this is according to projections by the Midwestern Higher Education uh, Compact, which is a nonprofit that works with colleges and universities. So again, by the year 2036, about 40% of Minnesota public high school graduates will be people of color. And so, Leah, when we think about how the future and how things are changing and being innovative and looking at new strategies, that's something to think about, too. What's going to happen with these uh, young people of color? Well, you know, even before we do that, I want to point out that the Supreme Court um, actually ruled that this affirmative action ruling doesn't apply to military academies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't apply to military academies because the bulk of mil- military academies, uh, because the bulk of the military, right, the front linemen, the people that are doing the fi- actual fighting and the dying are disproportionately made up of underrepresented racial minority groups. And they said it would be bad for morale, for worker morale. If the officer class, the class, the class leading them into battle were disproportionately white and male. Therefore, there was an imperative to continue affirmative action and to let military academies continue to recruit. And I think, you know, in the same ruling, right, there's there's an exemption, same ruling. And it is it is fascinating to me that. They couldn't take that logic and apply it to what you, Angela, what you have just shared with us, which is that the workforce is going to be changing, that 40 percent of uh, high school graduates will be made up of underrepresented minorities, people of color, and that it actually is really bad for morale to be seen to, to suggest that there is no one who looks like them, that there is no pathway for economic mobility or social mobility, because everyone... In, in positions of management or positions of power are white and or men. So, you know, there's something here. The United States has to deal with this problem as much as they want to say, no, it's not just the 14th Amendment isn't used for this. The reality is the country is changing. The workforce is changing. And colleges and universities, we've long seen them as the bastion and the beacon for really preparing the war, uh, this, these, these groups for the next stage of their lives. And so it's necessary for us to find some kind of solution to address this changing nation. And military academies, that would include the, the U.S. Naval Academy and, and, and West Point as, as an example. Um, right. And there's also an exemption, right? Or we haven't seen this addressed, legacy admissions. Uh, well, my daddy and my granddaddy went to this college. And so here in my essay, I'm going to be able to, to say that and also to check a box that shows that because you're asking me about that. Uh, what do we see as far as the future of legacy admissions? 
Well, one of the things that we know is there's there's already on the, the docket a, a lawsuit about legacy admissions. And I would not be surprised if we continue to see more lawsuits around legacy admissions, around um, sports athletes, around moneyed individuals going to college. Um, we know that for, you know, since 1961, when John F. Kennedy first used the phrase affirmative action, um, that there have been lawsuits, people who have challenged it. And that actually continues. There are two more lawsuits from the uh, group that brought this uh, current Supreme Court challenge. Um, so, of course, we'll see more of that. But I think we're going to see more challenges um, to colleges and universities on the part of underrepresented minorities, people who have been excluded and now are further excluded because of things like legacy admissions. I don't know how successful they'll be, but it's clear it's it's already on the agenda to challenge that. Mm-hmm. Lawsuits. Lawsuits are coming. And Suzanne, um, your thoughts about the what we have seen as, as being exempt. The First, with the nation's military academies, a statement that, oh, there's value in, in diversity there. Uh, so we're going to leave that alone. What, what were your thoughts about that? Well, it, it seems really uh, sort of cynical to me for the court to have um, made a distinction in that sort of way for the military academies and not apply the same logic to the imperative for us to make access to all of higher education more equitable. Uh, We know that the single most powerful tool a low-income student has to change their life opportunities is to get a four-year degree. And it still is the case in the U.S. that only something like 35% or 38% of Americans has a four-year degree. So uh, we need to do better. I mean, there's just a lot that colleges and universities need to do in order to increase uh, access. And, you know, I already said that McAllister eliminated standardized test scores, but we've also done things like eliminating the application fee. We do workshops, uh, Zoom workshops with students applying to college to demystify the college admissions process. We work with community-based partnerships like College Track and College Possible and the Posse Foundation to expand our pool of applicants to make sure we have the most diverse pool we can get so that we're selecting from. But there's a lot more that colleges and universities need to do to expand this pipeline. And for the court to say that expanding the pipeline deliberately to military academies is okay, but doing it deliberately for other colleges and universities isn't okay, um, strikes me as uh, really unfortunate. How does McAllister deal with legacy admissions? If, if I'm a student describing that my my mom, my aunts, my grandma all went to McAllister, does that have value? Well, McAllister doesn't have a legacy preference policy per se. Like we don't have a point system or another formula that that boosts the candidacy of applicants who are children or grandchildren of alumni, which is typically what is meant when we use the phrase legacy preference at at schools that have explicit policies like that. But I will say this issue is a little bit more complicated than the general public may understand, because we do take into account when we review applications, which candidates are more likely to attend if they were offered admission. So what I mean by that is if you have a lot more applicants than spots, you need to carefully manage how many admission offers you give out in order to get the number of students you want to matriculate, right? So to reduce uncertainty in that process, we're really discerning about which academically qualified applicants to admit based on a variety of factors. But also, we do consider the likelihood a student will come. In other words, we we want to give admissions offers to 
people who are more likely to actually say yes to our school. And so practically speaking, if there are two equivalent qualified candidates, but one of them has a pre-existing relationship to the college, Mm -hmm. whether they're because they're the child of an alumnus or let's say they came to one of our sports camps in the summer or they worked in one of our labs as a high school student or something like that, then that might give them a little bit of a boost because we would infer that they're more likely to come if we offer them admission. So I think some of what people refer to as legacy is like, you know, family loyalty or a tradition within a family where a kid wants to go to the college that their parents went to. And there isn't anything intrinsically wrong with that as long as, again, when you're assembling a diverse class, you're looking at all the attributes people Mm -hmm. bring. And their likelihood of attendance is one of the things that selective colleges look at when they decide to give an offer of admission. All right. I want to get one more phone call in uh, before the hour ends. And Ann and Dell, uh, Jenna's on the phone. Jenna, thank you for holding. What did you want to share with us? I have a daughter who just graduated this spring from St. Catherine University. Yes. And St. Kate's has a great, uh, diverse, bright, uh, focused, strong women uh, in their, their um, classes. And she had to specifically seek out St. Kate's because of the diversity because she wanted to be an ally, she wanted to learn to communicate with lots of different people, and she is concerned about social justice. So I, I think as allies, all of us, we need to be out there saying, this is important. This is important for the work. This is important for our kids. This is important for our country, that we need to be out there repeating the fact that there's a backlash against the minorities, and we need to say this isn't okay because it is important that we are all pulling in the same direction. Those of us who believe that this is important, we need to say so. And she really benefited in all the ways that you've talked about this hour Mm. from having people of different backgrounds in her classes. All right. Thank you, Jenna. And uh, we just have uh, a minute left, uh, Leah, but could you, in just like 20 seconds, could you speak to the young people and encourage them? Because I'm just worried a lot of people are feeling deflated. Like, I don't even want to bother with going to college. What would you say to someone, Leah? Now is not the time for discouragement. Now is the time for hope. And now is the time to to put your feet down and hit the road and do the work. Um, Democracy is not easy. It has never been easy and it will never be easy, but it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it, particularly for the promise of what it offers Mm and for the opportunity that it offers for you. So thank now you. is the time to, to make moves. Thank you. <laughs> We're out of time. I want to thank our guests, Aaliyah Wright-Rigger, a political historian and associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and Suzanne Rivera, the president of McAllister College in St. Paul. Thanks to you both. Thank you to our listeners for sharing your stories. This conversation was produced by Matthew Alvarez. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.